Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to conclude... Jesus. We're going to conclude the origins of totalitarianism by looking at the second half of the third part, titled Totalitarianism. Now before jumping into it, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at the underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo. You can find the links for that in the description. Uh, hi, I'm David. If you're new here, that's weird. Go to part one. Uh, but if you're new here, I explain philosophical concepts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you. So if you're new, like, share, subscribe. You'll see videos I release every single week. Uh, if you want to help me out, do all those things. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but obviously no pressure. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form uh, if you prefer that format. Or if you found this in podcast form, you can find me on YouTube or sometimes release videos if you're into that at all. If you are listening in a podcast platform that lets you leave five stars, a review, I'd love, uh, I'd love for you to do that. And uh, yeah, let's jump into this. Now we're on the second half of totalitarianism, the part that is, and starting with chapter 11 titled The Totalitarian Movement. So last episode, we finished off by discussing the role of terror for totalitarianism. And here she picks up by saying that, not in her words, but the idea is, is that alongside terror and terrorism, totalitarianism needs propaganda to gain public support and to form the masses, which so far has been a kind of a glaring hole in what we've been discussing. We haven't talked about propaganda. And I think a lot of the things that we might uh, know from Nazi Germany or from Stalinist Russia is that propaganda played an instrumental role, like the work of, uh, work of the uh, propaganda of Goebbels. So propaganda would be used uh, against Jewish people, would depict Jewish people as being parasitical, uh, associating them with vermin, with with other animals, suggesting that they have like tentacles and these tentacles expand or extend across the earth or, or anything like that. And the role of propaganda is not necessarily to offer new information, but to confirm deep-seated thoughts that the public has, but do not have the language to really um, come out with it. Maybe they're shy. Uh, you know, they don't want to share these problematic views. Now, if suddenly government officials or people who want to go into government are sharing these views, it just acts as a, as a, as a welcome mat for you to come in with your own view to say that, hey, yeah, I agree with this. Thank you for saying what we've all been thinking. And it also helps that with propaganda, it's largely image-based. So, you know, not much reliance on text. And, you know, that's instrumental because anyone can see it and then it'll just immediately click with them, uh, whether or not, you know, this will happen if it's an overt image or if it is a more sneaky kind of propaganda that works a little bit more tacitly, works more like a dog whistle. And yeah, and I think that it's super interesting to study. I, I don't really know much about the study of propaganda, but it seems like today propaganda assumes a different form and it's maybe less image-based, like when we think of propaganda, we might think of like um, Russian bots or something or any kind of like state-run algorithmic biases that aren't producing their own images for political purposes to demonize certain groups or anything like that. Instead, they're like just turn the or just kind of direct what already exists in the Internet sphere to hit certain populations at the right time in order to foment rage or to sow doubt about certain institutions or certain political leaders or certain, you know, 
uh, candidates that are running for office or, or anything like that. But I'm just speculating. I really know nothing. I'd love it. if someone knew uh, more about this. I'd like to read anything you might have to say. Now, propaganda in totalitarian regimes kind of serves more of a preliminary purpose. That is, when the totalitarian regime has effectively gained power and it is relying on cultivating a, a, a culture of fear and paranoia, it loses its use of propaganda to some extent because the people are so scared, they, they don't need to be, you know, uh, the fear, they don't need more fear. Like they're already like at their maximum of fear and distrust and doubt. They are, they are prime. They are ripe for the picking. And so propaganda kind of loses its meaning as totalitarianism proceeds. Now, one of the ways that propaganda might continue even after uh, totalitarianism has gained its power is if it's trying to persuade people that exist outside of totalitarian regimes. And so it will be directed against foreign populations or directed to foreign populations to bring them into the fold of uh, what the totalitarian regime promises and what it uh, what it promises to fight against. So the Nazis would, you know, enter a, enter a country and begin to disseminate pamphlets and propaganda about Jewish people, about gay people, about so many different people, in order to expand the number of people that believe in what they're saying. And on top of this, their propaganda would often use science, which is really just pseudoscience, and research, so to speak, to justify the claims that it's making. Now, of course, when totalitarianism finally takes over, it, it really departs from any real attachment to facts. It's only interested at that point in uh, expanding for expansion's sake. It doesn't need to persuade anyone because it's already, it's already got its tentacles into everyone's hearts and spirits. And so it relies quite heavily on repetition. Even though a lot of its claims or many of the claims that it makes aren't grounded in reality or grounded in fact, like the idea about a Jewish world conspiracy theory or Jewish world conspiracy, it nevertheless will repeat that phrase or repeat that idea so often that it becomes fact or that it becomes true. And when something gains that status by being repeated often enough, or if an idea is bolstered up with pseudoscience, it will gain traction and legitimacy in the eyes of all the people around, and so, or all the, the public, and so they will be more likely to submit to it because that justification, you know, if there really was a world conspiracy, doesn't matter which group is organizing it, people would want to get together to oppose that. So they are going to shed their class distinctions or their gender distinctions or the race distinctions, whatever. Well, maybe not the race ones, because, you know, the Nazi Germany was certainly using that against them. Uh, all of these other distinctions in order to oppose this threat. And if you have leaders who are coming in at a time of political turmoil or of social instability, if they claim to have the answers to things, the people will often prefer to take that than just to submit to more arbitrary rule. They would prefer the comfort of having a single leader that will that claims to be able to fix all of the problems than to just uh, still engage in some kind of like quasi-freedom, but have things be unpredictable. 
And this is also one of the reasons or one of the ways that conspiracy theories become particularly effective is that conspiracy theories reduce what might be um, arbitrary actions that might be chance events. It ascribes to these events a motive. And if there is a motive, it suggests that the world isn't random, it isn't chaotic, that there is a plan. And so therefore, that that plan can be opposed. Because you can't oppose things if they just happen by chance. If there's just mistakes are being made and people get hurt because of it, you can't um, oppose that because mistakes happen. But if you are able to tell the public that there is a plan for them to be disenfranchised by this other group, you can motivate that those people to come together to oppose that threat. Which is why, like I said, conspiracy theories are very effective at galvanizing and bringing together groups to oppose this threat. So anti-Semitic conspiracy theories stoked fear and hatred in the hearts of the people, where employers and government officials under Hitler took it so far as to demand people prove their non-Jewish lineage. You know, people had to go through their family history to make sure that there was, they didn't have like a Jewish ancestor. They had to do this, and they had therefore um, made sure that they actually had a pure-blooded connection to Germany, to whiteness. So it was more of an effort to create an artificial bond between German people here than it was to actually say that there's anything bad about uh, Jewish people. Of course, that is the goal, like that is the route that they take. But really what they're trying to do is to create this bond between people, German people that are divided in so many ways, but class, race, gender, everything like that. They want to uh, create a bond among all of them. So they create this artificial threat that is the determining antithesis to which everyone else has to come together, has to recognize their mutual um, affinity with one another in order to oppose that threat. And then once you have a people come together in that way, you can tell them that they're coming together on the basis of their race or their blood, which how can you deny that? I mean, it sounds like a very nice uh, opportunity for people, people who are striving, people who are fighting to get this sense of community, suddenly you're with people who you have an affinity with uh, on the on, on a natural biological basis. And that is very, can be very comforting. Of course, it's founded on nothing, and it only contributes to a culture of hate. But at the time, it's very difficult to recognize it for that for, as being those things. And so even with the conspiracy theories, it was less about an actual concern for these supposed conspiracies on the part of Jewish people and more a desire to position this threat and to try to match that threat. Because really it was just a project of deflection. The Nazis were trying to do exactly what they were claiming Jewish people were doing. The Nazis were trying to set up a world government under their rule. Like There's no other way about it. While the Jewish people were not doing that, they had no desire to. Uh, and the only possible like thing that they were trying to do was to develop a state for themselves, and who wouldn't want that? But the Nazis took this narrative, even though it wasn't grounded in fact in any way, shape, or form, in order to justify their doing those things. So they essentially created a counter-conspiracy, a real counter-conspiracy, to oppose the artificial Jewish world conspiracy 
And what gives it credence is that there are kernels of truth here. So they'll say something that like uh, Jewish people are rich, which is not like a, a true statement. Sure, they could point to like a few Jewish families and be like, they're rich, but you could do that with any any race of people. But they would take that and because it resonated with an unconscious or subconscious bias on the part of the public, they could then say, of course, of course, it's the Jewish people that are doing this. It's the Jewish people who are exploiting us. But that is only made possible because Jewish people and Jewish identity is an identity that can be marked and understood. Whereas in the case of just Christian uh, white rich families, they aren't recognized as being uh, a noticeable identity category from that context. And so therefore, no conspiracy is sketched about them or pointed to about them. Now, once this mass of people has been effectively established, it is it begins to separate into groups, which might seem counterintuitive. And these groups are not, uh, you know, sketched in stone. At best, they're written in the sand. But they are largely comprised of the insiders and the outsiders, or the sympathizers, or I should say, uh, the kind of party leaders and party figures, and then everybody else. Because there need to be people at the helm, so to speak, in order to actually direct things, in order to actually give commands. Now, this serves many different purposes. But the biggest one that Arendt points to is that totalitarianism tries not to develop a culture of exceptionality. And it, it tries not to direct people's attention to a few fantastical figures. It wants to also maintain the idea that there is mass support for it. And, and indeed there was. But it does that in order to make it seem like a delectable or a seductive alternative to what other populations in the world are doing so that they might look at that and say, wow, gee, these people look real happy underneath this rule or in this uh, kind of setup. We should do this. And so this division between party leaders and the masses was meant to impart um, the idea that people were living good, fulfilling lives and wanted uh, and wanted that totalitarianism. But also the division between the two is not nearly so clear. And we'll talk about this in a bit, I believe, but it was in the government officials to always keep these things free floating and moving. So everyday people could occupy very important positions and very important people could fall down to the ranks of the, just the masses. And this was meant to always be distracting from where the power resided. But before they were able to do that, they needed to get their clause into all public institutions, even those even those that were kind of outside of the purview of the state, so like academic institutions or, or journalistic ones. And the Nazis in Nazi Germany were, were very smart in that they hurt smart. It's a weird way to describe them. What they did was they imposed themselves into all of these institutions by, um, by recruiting, like from academia, they would recruit academics and intellectuals to be part of their party culture to be part of their um, upper echelon of society, which just allowed the Nazis to get into those, uh, into the academic institutions. And they did the same with journalism and with healthcare and everything like that. Now, interestingly, when 
obviously when the upper echelons, when government officials are, you know, so many different people are now around them. And now there's like an, an actual kind of party established, even though they, they said they weren't going to do that with Hitler and his cronies, what actually happened or what had to happen under totalitarianism was that Hitler could not actually blame the people around him for things because totalitarianism promised that it was going to uh, completely change the way that politics was done, which meant that there wasn't going to be any more corruption. It would have looked really bad if Hitler was suddenly um, opposing people in his own cabinet or in his own governmental and political circles. So he wouldn't actually be able to do that without losing the support of the people around him. So, of course, if anyone was insubordinate or would do something that he didn't like, they would probably just be killed uh, without anyone knowing it. And so secrecy played a big role here, and the same as well with uh, Stalinist Russia. Secrecy was paramount because there, there had to be two narratives. There had to be the outward-facing narrative to the public, but there also had to be the secret narratives as to how power was going to be executed and stuff. But remember, a lot of the most atrocious stuff was happening with public knowledge. The public knew that Germany was invading Poland, and that it, that in itself should have been reason to oppose uh, that government with every ounce that they could, every fiber of their being. But they didn't. And that is because that narrative fit in with the overall project, which begs the question, what is allowed in this setting to be a secret and what is not? What has to be said outright and what has to be kept guarded? And Arendt doesn't really provide an answer to this because, uh, well, they were kept secret. And so technically, uh, it's likely no one really knows. But it likely was uh, they kept the actual administrative functioning of their government secret. And plus military actions, they would keep secret, you know, when fighting against the allies. They would um, keep all of these things secret so that their internal operations couldn't be revealed. Because if the public knew that there was actually a plan behind this, the steady destructuring of government, that you know, it was meant to fulfill a certain function to just galvanize more power in, for Hitler and his, his pals, then that may have uh, resulted in them losing the support of the masses. So they were going to have to keep that secret, keep that on the down low. And when you have a country that is just, or, you know, political leaders that are open about the most heinous things ever, it provides a false sense of trust on the part of the people, where the people will say, wow, this person is just telling the truth. They're just, you know, they aren't saying what the mainstream media is saying. They're just saying what, you know, whatever they want, you know, they won't lie to us because they are saying what might traditionally have been kept secret, it reveals then, or, or it seems then, as though these politicians have the public's best interest in mind. When, of course, that's not the case. They're just cleverly uh, revealing some aspects of their plans in order to provide that sense of openness and transparency. And when that happens, because for so long politicians were occupying a space that was almost entirely secret now anything that hitler could say even if it was factually incorrect could be taken up by the people as being correct 
and that everybody else was wrong and that it was only that now because Hitler is telling the truth Hitler has the the courage to speak that it can come out and that other institutions fact checking institutions or anything are just peddling fake news or um do not actually understand the truth of what is being said in the in like this new example of of open political dialogue and if it reminds you of anybody uh <laughs> I think that you're you're on the right track here. And so it's very difficult to oppose people who have drunk the or taken the blue pill of totalitarianism. It's very difficult to dissuade them with facts. Very much like with conspiracy theorists, it's very difficult to use facts to dissuade them. Like uh, you know, COVID-19 conspiracy theorists, any fact that you can provide is going to have to come from uh, probably government officials or from academics, you know, people doing the science. But because they are part of the conspiracy for the conspiracy theorists, you know, the conspiracy theorists read something on Facebook that says that the government and universities are out to get them. And then you show up and say, look, no, the government says it's not out to get you. And these are the facts as to why that will only serve to... Uh, you know, ignite the fire of the conspiracy theorists to keep them going and to motivate them to want to uh, keep thinking what they're thinking, which is why it's really important when, if anyone out there has to engage with conspiracy theorists, it's important not to just approach them with counterfacts. You must first acknowledge them on their level, not in like a paternalistic way, but engage with them on their level, hear what they have to say, and gently find ways that the things that they have said have contradicted other things that they have said. And, you know, saying it as though you are also surprised by it. Not that, oh, I'm so smart, I'm showing you why you're stupid. You have to show that parts of it just don't seem to make sense and very gently suggest that it needs more analysis then. We, need, we, we should probably do more research into this. At least that's one possible approach to um, conspiracy theorists. And that puts us here into chapter 12, titled Totalitarianism in Power. So totalitarianism is kind of paradoxical in that it is tied to nation while expanding internationally. So the idea, and if any of us rem remember our time in high school, or if anyone is in high school that listens to this, and you might be reading about Nazi Germany, you're probably going to read in your textbooks that it was a nationalist movement. You know, they were the National Socialist Party. But at the same time, they were also very much geared to expanding internationally. You know, they were trying, they took over Poland, they were trying to take over France and, and Britain and all these neighboring countries. And so there was simultaneously a desire to maintain the motherland of Germany while also expanding to other places, which might seem like a paradox, it might seem like a contradiction, but remember that totalitarian regimes pride themselves on eternal movement, on a kind of permanent state of revolution. And so what happens is they're able to write off this possible contradiction as just uh, another step in this project of permanent revolution. And permanent revolution is really useful for totalitarian totalitarianism because it isn't expected to set out specific customs and laws and, and goals or anything like that. 
And so the, the Nazis would multiply government offices and make them really superfluous and redundant just to contribute to this culture of constant reform and constant revolution. And it also made it difficult, right, for anyone to know what was really going on and to contribute to uh, a culture of secrecy and compartmentalization. And it also works well to get rid of the traditional understanding of hierarchy, where if now things are spread out and they're spread out in a kind of chaotic way, it's difficult to really trace the lineage of this political uh, order, which is how totalitarianism also differs from authoritarianism, authoritarianism or tyranny or dictatorship. And she actually gives, uh, she kind of pokes fun at Adorno for anyone who's read or tried or is familiar with, because I imagine not many people have read it because it's really long. But uh, Adorno participated in a study called The Authoritarian Personality, in which he, among others, were studying exactly what contributes to people believing in authoritarianism. And Arendt, Arendt says that um, their study was kind of based on the misconception that what the world saw with Nazi Germany and Stalinist Russia were examples of authoritarianism, when in fact they were historically different. Like there has been authoritarianism long before uh, totalitarianism, but totalitarianism is something different for all the reasons I've been laying out here. And like, or unlike authoritarianism, totalitarianism isn't intent on establishing one single political order. It wants to just destroy things. It wants to just expand, destroy things, uh, and expand and destroy things over and over again. Whereas authoritarianism is probably going to try and set up a single kind of rule. And there are, uh, or there is an exception to this. And that exception is that still there's the retention or there is still, uh, this, the people still hold on to the idea of the state of, of a single unit. But that unit is only used in a kind of superficial way or this steady, rigid structure, even the, the remnants of a political order, are used in a very superficial way only to encourage a little bit of dialogue between our, our still existing nations, nation states. But that veneer is only used to um, make it easier for totalitarianism to sneak into those other countries. So it goes through this common channel, or these common channels, that other countries can recognize. And then once it does that, it can get in there and then take over. So these other nations aren't viewed as being ends in themselves. They're viewed as being means to totalitarianism's expansion, which is why, again, the police serve such an instrumental function under totalitarianism, because they have to go in and keep these populations in these countries at bay once they've invaded. And in, in this moment, especially when the government says that there are so-called objective enemies, like the Jewish people, or like Roma people and, and others, but mostly, of course, the Jewish people, uh, this is, it's in this moment that the police probably assume the most outward form of totalitarian power. They, they become the face of totalitarianism because they're the ones arresting people, even though they don't really have that power. Uh, or they have the power to arrest people, but they don't have the power. That's still reserved for the higher government officials. But all it does is participate in that um, kind of conflation or, God, what's the word? When you confuse things. Uh, anyways, it'll come to me later. It only serves the end of making people unaware of where the power resides. 
And this seems like a good point for an ad. So in, sorry about that, but and I'm not sorry, whatever, screw it. Um, in like authoritarian or despotic regimes, there was a chance, still a chance for opposition to that because it's very clear who the leader was and how that government organization actually worked. And it was not exactly encouraged by neighboring states in a lot of cases. However, under totalitarianism, because it, it exerts its force in no clear, measured, or patterned way, it'll just select uh, you know, objective enemies that it'll pick out, uh, it will just disappear, and it'll just arrest other people almost randomly. It creates a culture of uh, uncertainty about who is at threat and who is not. And what that does is it makes it unclear whether or not people should care about what's going on. And this is just what we, you know, what we see so often is that people don't care about something unless it affects them directly, which is really the tragedy of our, uh, of our world. And so totalitarianism was particularly effective at encouraging this by being very unclear in how it was organizing itself uh, judicially how it was going to impose law and who was going to be uh, hurt and affected by it. And the, the crime or the punishment that these people would face would, would differ radically. Some of them would just disappear. Some of them would be shipped to or disappear by being shipped to concentration camps. Some would go to jail. Some would be executed. There was no rhyme nor reason to it, which harkens back to pre, I guess, pre-18th century forms of of punishment in Europe, and this is really out of Foucault, in that uh, following the Enlightenment or during the, the Enlightenment, certain governments began to impose more regulated forms of discipline. So they were more clear on what constituted crimes and more clear about the punishments that would follow these crimes. And this allowed them to establish normative institutions of criminality. So they could then say, more easily recognize who were criminals, who were delinquents, everything like that. Now, what we saw here was almost a reversal of that, where we started to turn back the clock and go back to an arbitrary form of criminality or an understanding of criminality, which contributed to a sense of chaos that happened to just fit so perfectly within totalitarianism. It was like going back to a, to a, to a, a, an archaic time in 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 the European context in order to encourage a sense of chaos. So as one form of punishment, the concentration camps are really the, the apotheosis, they're like the pinnacle of the logic of totalitarianism in that the concentration camps deployed an administrative effort to reduce people to a subhuman status and to exterminate them without any uh, impunity with with without any qualms about it. They didn't care. They did it coldly. They did it efficiently. While the whole apparatus was completely inefficient, they were proficient at killing, and doing so in unfathomable numbers. And there, it it served a very important role. Just the horrors of the Holocaust were just so unparalleled to other Europeans. Of course, similar things were being conducted against black people in Africa or, or in India and, and in North America. Similar things were being done. 
But because it was happening on the homeland in Europe, people were like not prepared to believe it, which was actually beneficial to the Nazis because they were able to keep doing it. And if anyone wanted to, you know, whistleblow about it, they could confidently say, well, no one's going to believe you. Like no one's actually going to believe that this is going on, even though people knew it was going on, but they would just turn their heads or they believe that it was just, it was justified. And the concentration camps encourage two deaths. You know, there's the death of your physical body that will happen probably, you know, not long after you arrive uh, for the Jewish people there. But also it, there's just the death of the entire experience where people are loaded onto trains for days or weeks at a time, forced to huddle together, have their bodily autonomy, their identity, their history all taken from them and are just left to be shells, essentially, just reduced to a bare human form as, as Agamben writes about it, reduced to only your, your skin and bones, essentially. And so concentration camps actually... As, as she says, in terms of uh, this, what I'll call the non-bodily death, you know, the death of yourself, it actually assumes three different forms. So you have the two forms, you, there's real death, but then there's this more symbolic death. This symbolic death is comprised of a death of judicial sense, of moral sense, and of individual sense. So it blurs the line between what good and evil is, like there's no logic to it right? It just just operates without any care for anything about good and evil. It also, in terms of morality, it blurs the line between prosecutor and prosecuted, where people in, um, of course, not with the Jewish people, like they were, they were the prosecuted ones, but in Nazi Germany, people who felt themselves to be victims of a system were participating in that or, or in more violence against other people, against Jewish people. And because that so many people were oscillating between positions of power and positions of relative um, lack of power, of victimhood, that blurred the line between the two. And then finally, there was a, a death, uh, the death of individual sense in that they removed all individual qualities, you know, shaving, having people have their head shaved, you know, removing any clothing or iconography that they had and so on. And it is this ideal extension of the masses, you know, just reducing people to a homogenous whole. And um, that, that really makes it so profoundly suitable for totalitarianism. And it follows the internal logic of totalitarianism that, that sketched Jewish people and with the whole logic of European culture really up till that time and how anti-Semitism ran rampant. It sketched Jewish people as being like rats and like vermin. And then the next claim was that rats and vermin should be exterminated. So it was very easy to make the leap that therefore Jewish people should be exterminated. And it, there is no sense to it. There, it. It is the most heinous form of nonsense. But because it fit within the totalitarian regime that had gained that kind of support, that overall support, it could be accepted wholeheartedly as factual, as the proper course of action. And that puts us here into chapter 13, the final chapter titled Ideology and Terror, a Novel Form of Government. So in relation to other forms of government in human history, it is tempting to see totalitarianism as an aberration. 
but it's really more it's more complicated than that it really borrows from a bunch of different regimes so it borrows from like authoritarianism it borrows from democracy to some extent it borrows from fascism and and so on but it takes all the worst elements of these different political formations and governmental formations in order to construct the most heinous form of organization but in the history of you know political political thought there have often been efforts to organize government and to organize political power on the basis of human history or of human nature where some people would say we are just going to follow along the course of what is best in terms of the progression of humanity while others would say no we know what human nature is and we're going to foster that so arendt identifies that the bolsheviks and then with Stalinist Russia, there was the idea of maintaining, of realizing the law of history, that is class histories, recognizing the world as class struggle, and then adapting law in that way. Whereas the Nazis viewed, the, it really embraced the idea of history as nature or the law of nature. And that's the idea of race history, that history is organized by a natural conflict between races. So the progenitors, so the uh, kind of forefathers of these lines of thinking, in the case of class, it was Marx. In the case of race, it was Darwin. What we saw here was that uh, these approaches applied a, supplied a roadmap for totalitarianism in that they reduced all humans to a kind of law, either in the form of history or, or of nature, which made them essentially indistinguishable. So those who opposed the law, you know, Bourgeois, the bourgeois or Jewish people were seen as being uh, in need of extermination. And so it exercises, uh, exercises terror to realize this law, to, in this is Arendt's words, to stabilize men in order to liberate the forces of nature or history. And this reveals its connection with ideology. That is an effort to explain the world in one single way, to say that the world is just uh, can be understood in terms of class distinction or class conflict or in terms of race, race conflict. And here she concludes the entire book by thinking about the role of loneliness and isolation in fostering totalitarianism, where she says that isolation is not enough to encourage totalitarianism because you can be isolated but still have community. You know, you could you could have to go off into the woods uh, and write Walden, or, you know, you could be Kant, and Kant, you know, disappeared for 10 years to write the first critique, uh, you know, in isolation. But you could still belong to a community. Whereas with loneliness, you could be with others, but you don't have a connection with them. You're just part of a mass of people that, a, a, a mass of people who, who are all loners, who are all lonely people. And then along comes totalitarianism and says, I can fix this feeling of loneliness. What we're going to do is we're going to get rid of the distinction between the private and the public. We're just, everything is going to be made public. We're going to rip everything out into the open, unless it's what we're doing behind the scenes, then that's going to remain private. But everything the public does, it's going to be out in the open. No one will have to feel lonely ever again. But of course, this is only an artificial form of, of community of recognition with others, the ability to witness and to be with others. It's, it's not, it's not a, a tenable solution to that feeling of loneliness. And, you know, this, and this also harkens back to her thesis, her primary thesis, I guess, in The Human Condition, when she writes that 
there needs to be a delicate balance between public and private life. People need to be alone at times. This is where they're going to be allowed to think for themselves, to cultivate themselves as their own uh, person, you know, cultivate their own sense of self. But then it is in public that they are able to engage with others and to grow in that way. So what totalitarianism offered was the complete dissolvement. It it completely dissolved that uh, delicate equilibrium between the public and the private in favor of just pure spectral light, pure publicity. And she leaves us here. It's kind of unclear to me, actually, if she leaves us here on a note of hope or um, concern. And that is because she leaves us with an acknowledgement acknowledgement about humans' capacity for newness and for um, spontaneity, maybe to some extent. And while my gut instinct is to say that this is a good note to leave off on, because spontaneity is really what makes us human, and it's a good way to oppose um fascism and totalitarianism at the same time i think that she had you know just having lived through world war ii and and knowing what had gone on i think that she also was struggling to reconcile a positive outlook on the future of humanity and you know right now as i'm recording this um you know russia's deep within ukraine's borders Meanwhile, NATO is saying, condemning this, even though, of course, NATO's long history of violence committed against so many, so many nations, it's unreal. And so what we have is like a stalemate between one form of violence or another. Obviously, at the same time, it's important, like what, what Russia is doing has to stop immediately. But um, just the horrors that have been inflicted by uh, every other nation Anyways, I don't want to go, uh, you know, let out all my current uh, bad feelings about the world. But in any case, that closes up this book. <laughs> I hope that you enjoyed it. And uh, if there's anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Or anything that I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. If you like what I did, uh, leave five stars or whatever you want. And uh, yeah. Stay safe, everyone, and catch you next time. Take care.